Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the dudes from the dudes retreat. Glad, glad to see you here awake. And uh, yeah, awesome. There's a Christmas tree in the foyer. I don't know if you noticed that. We talked about it earlier with the video uh, version of Christmas. I just think it's strange that there's a Christmas tree two months before Christmas, but it's okay. All right. You know, Advent is like a month away. I mean, November 28th is the first Sunday of Advent, so we're getting there, okay? We're getting there. I guess you're not as excited about that as me. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, yeah, okay. I bring that up, though, because Advent, in a lot of ways, is, is about anticipating the return of Jesus Christ, the, the second coming of Christ, just, just as he came once, he's coming again, and so we have this anticipatory hope of, of Jesus' return. And I bring that up because as we get back into our series on Philippians today, Philippians 3, we're going to be there, and uh, Paul brings up this idea of eternity. And what he wants us to see, I think, today is that eternity can and should and needs to have, have a huge effect on how we live our lives. So we're going to look at that today, and we're just going to jump right into it. I'm just going to look at the first... Uh, First two verses of our text here this morning, Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11. Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, what do you believe about eternity? What, what are your thoughts on that? Have you ever sat down and and contemplated eternity for any length of time. I mean, for Paul, eternity changed everything for him. Or specifically, Jesus, the eternal one, changed everything for him. When he was on that road to Damascus, on his way to go persecute Christians, and all of a sudden he gets stopped in his tracks and blinded by the light, and now he can't see anymore, and Jesus changes his life, changes his heart. And now he has a whole new set of priorities. He's not... He's not he didn't want to go persecute Christians anymore. He didn't want to be the, the self-righteous Pharisee anymore. Now he wants to live his life for Christ. He says, I want to know Jesus, and I want to know him perfectly. He has his mind set on Jesus and on the future hope of being with Jesus in eternity. That is Paul's priority, and it spurs him on. This is, this is what drives him every single day. But it begs the question, what can we know? I mean, if that's really our future hope, what is there to know about it? What can we know about it? What do we expect when it comes to eternity? I mean, on one level, like, we stop and think about eternity, it'll mess with your mind, right? I mean, just think, we're going we're gonna to be in heaven, and there's no end. And, and it's, it's like, we, we live for a trillion years, and it just doesn't stop. It just keeps going. And then we have a trillion more years, and there's just no end. And like, if you, if you think about that for, for long enough, it will make you feel a little weird because we're not built in this, in this sort of limited, broken existence we have. We're just not built to be able to comprehend that. I mean, think about this other part of it. We believe that God has no beginning. How does God have no beginning? That's, that will really mess with your mind. But that just shows you, even though, like the Bible says, God's placed eternity in our hearts, in other words, we are designed for eternity, we're kind of not able to really comprehend it yet. We will one day, but right now we can't. So, but we can know some things about it, right? We know that Jesus is going to return one day. 
He's promised that. He's going to return. He's going to, when he returns, he's going to establish a new heavens and new earth. He's not going to burn up the planet and then whisk us all away into the sky. He's going to establish a perfect earth here, a new creation, a kingdom that will last forever where he will be with us. He says, I will be, I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll see him. You'll be able to go talk to him face to face. That is what awaits us. And we know, like for instance, in that perfect world, there will be no, no more sun, moon, and stars. Why? Because it says God will be our light. We, we know there will be no more sin, suffering, pain, death, disease. He will wipe away every tear. We will have a perfect existence. And we'll have perfect resurrection bodies. Amen? Praise the Lord for that, because I ain't got no perfect body right now. This thing's struggling, okay? Part of that's my fault. Part of that's just sin, brokenness. 1 Corinthians 15 is the go-to passage on the general resurrection, as we call it. In verses 51 through 53, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Guys, I'm telling you, when I first started to comprehend what this means, like I really, as a kid, used to believe that heaven was just going to be like, okay, you're going to you're going to get sort of like whisked away into the sky. You're going to be a spirit being for your, like, kind of like an angel. You're going to have wings. You're going to play a harp. You're just going to float around for all eternity. And as a kid, I'll be honest with you, that was like, that's so boring. I don't want to do that. I mean, maybe that sounds wrong to say that, but that, that does sound kind of boring. Floating around in the sky. I mean, it'd be cool for a little while, but but no, what, what the Bible is teaching is that, no, you're going to have a perfect body in a perfect earth. He's going to remake this earth to be the most perfect version of itself that you could possibly imagine. We're going to live in a new creation for all of eternity. Can you imagine what that will be like? Perfect. In some ways, we just can't. We can't comprehend it because we're so used to brokenness. It's everywhere. It affects all of us all the time. But we're going to, that's, that is the future that awaits us when we cross the finish line of our lives. Now, I do want to emphasize, though, that future, that, that promise of a perfect life, a perfect body, a perfect earth in and of itself is not enough to change our hearts and to give us real hope. It only, it only really matters if we understand that it's, it's about having a perfect face-to-face relationship with our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what is really our hope in all of this. I was thinking about Forrest Gump when I thought about this because in Forrest Gump, if you've seen it, you know, there's Lieutenant Dan. Forrest meets Lieutenant Dan in Vietnam, and you know, Lieutenant Dan gets, gets seriously injured and ends up having to have his legs amputated, and he's in a wheelchair, and then later on in the movie, 
they, they meet up again, Forrest and Lieutenant Dan, and you see Lieutenant Dan, he's got long hair, he's in a wheelchair, he's drinking, he's, you know, he's frustrated, he's angry, and he starts talking about how you know, he, he talks to these preachers, and they keep saying, you know, if you just accept Jesus into your heart, then one day you'll get to walk with Jesus in heaven. And then he's like, he's basically like, that's just a bunch of baloney. He's, he's angry. He's bitter. He's mad about it. Why? Because even though they're telling him about this promise of eternal life, he doesn't believe it because he doesn't know Jesus. Without Jesus, this promise of eternal life means nothing to us. But then you see later in the movie what happens. He actually does come to know Jesus and in a, in a sort of a limited way, the movie presents that idea to us that, that Lieutenant Dan, he, he gets right with God. And he's a changed man. He's, all of a sudden, by the end of the movie, he's like, he's filled with hope and joy. And he's just a different dude because he knows Jesus. And that's the key to this. It's not just that we have an eternity that awaits us. It's we have an eternity with Jesus that awaits us. That's what matters. And just to sort of seal that off, C.S. Lewis actually talks about how he, he believed that heaven, to a, to a person who didn't know Jesus or love Jesus, that heaven would actually be miserable. What? Like, yeah, he, he, he would say, because listen, heaven is wherever Jesus is. And if you don't like Jesus, you're not going to like heaven. That's what C.S. Lewis believed. I, I don't know that that's necessarily somewhere in the Bible, but I can, I can get where he's going with that. Because heaven is really all about Jesus. And that's what awaits us at the finish line of our lives. But for our purposes today, here's, here's the question. What difference does it make right now, today, for you, for me? Let's look at verses 12 through 16. He says, not that I have already obtained this, this being the you know, resurrection of the dead, glorification, all that, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So the first thing we see, what difference does it make? It, it, eternity spurs us on toward maturity. This is the reason why we grow in maturity. Paul's, you know, he's kind of straddling a fence here. He's like, you know, I'm not going to be perfect in this life. I'm not perfect now. I won't ever be perfect, but I'm still kind of trying to be perfect. So like, we have to kind of figure out what he's saying here, because this doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first. Um, so I want to look at some of these verbs in verses 12, 13, and 14. In, in verse 12, he says, I press on. In verse 13, he says, I strain forward, I stretch forward. In verse 14, again, he says, I press on towards what? Towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. This is this is track and field language. He's, he's talking about this the way someone would talk about running a race, in, like in the Olympics. He's saying, I strain, I stretch toward the finish line. I'm with everything I got. You know, like, have you ever seen, you ever seen cars? 
in that opening race where Lightning McQueen is tied with the other two guys because he sticks his tongue out at the finish line, you know, like I'm stretching everything I have toward the finish line. I'm, I'm putting forth a tremendous amount of effort in this race that I call life. And then as we go ahead in verse 15, again, we see more of this type of language. Um, the word for mature, one commentator I read actually said that he, he kind of felt like that word in the Greek can carry the sense of an athlete who's in training for a competition. So, so in other words, a mature person is someone who is in training. A mature Christian is training for something. But what are we training for? Well, it's not an actual race. It's not the Olympics or anything like that. We already said we don't have perfect bodies, right? So I'm not going to be in the Olympics. But Russell Moore, he says this. He says, we are in a training pattern toward eternity. We are training for our life, our resurrection life with Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? Let me me put it to you this way. Have you ever thought, you know, like, okay, I'm saved by grace. It's a gift. Jesus has died on the cross for my sins and given me the gift of salvation. And that's just, that's guaranteed. Like, I, I can't do anything to lose my salvation. So I guess it doesn't really matter how I live right now. You know, I can kind of party and live it up and do whatever I want, and, and I'll be saved. It's okay. I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm good to go, right? I mean, that's, that's the way sometimes people think about it. It's like, it's almost as if the fact that we are saved by grace, and we're not going to lose it, makes this life pointless. But what Paul's actually saying here is, no, the opposite is true, that the fact that you're saved by grace and that you've been given this great gift of salvation— and you have eternity awaiting you as a guarantee, that actually makes this life have more meaning and purpose than you've ever had before. How? Because our doing the Christian life is our actively practicing for our resurrection life in Christ. We are training for that future life right now. Like we're trying to, it's like we're trying it on. We're trying to figure out what will it be like for us to be in that perfect world. And I want, and like, like Paul would say, I want to live as close to that way as I possibly can. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I, I'm, I am looking forward. I'm so looking forward to being with Jesus that I just want to start trying to live that way now. In other words, um, another place he says in 1 Timothy 4, he says, I'm, I'm training myself for godliness. He actually says that as a command, that we all should be training for godliness. So what does that look like? Well, a great place to look for this is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. You know, Jesus is telling us what does citizenship in the kingdom of God look like? He says, like in the Beatitudes, he's like, blessed are the, are the meek, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the, um, the merciful. Are these people that our world calls blessed? I mean, do we think persecuted people are blessed? No, but Jesus says the kingdom of God's different. We have different values. Or he'll talk about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount how, you know, listen, yeah, our, our outward actions matter, but what matters more is, is what motivates your outward actions from your heart. He said God cares about your heart more than anything else. That's different. It's not how the world thinks. Or he talks about like in Matthew 6 toward the end, he's like, you know, 
Look at the lilies. Look at the birds. They don't worry about anything. God provides for them. So why are you worrying? You're more important than them. Why are you anxious? God will provide for you. But that's a different way of looking at life. So he's telling us in the Sermon on the Mountain and in other places too, here is how citizenship in the kingdom of God is different. And then growing in maturity as a Christian then is also going to look very different, right? Because like the world, the world thinks of maturity. If you think about how, you know, your, your company or, or your school views maturity, it's, it's sort of like a, I'm shedding my need for help. The more, the more, the more I need help, the less mature I am, the less I need help, the more mature I am. It's, it's a desire or a drive to become elite or independent. That's maturity in the eyes of the world. And in some cases, that's true. Like, I, I do want my kids to move out. Not right now, but eventually, right? I mean, we don't... Anyway. So, Christian maturity... I, I do love you, Nathaniel and Elijah. Sorry. <laughs> just, just don't stay for another 15 years or whatever. Anyway. Um, Christian maturity is not a move towards independence, it's a move towards dependence. It's, it's growing more dependent on Christ. It's being honest about how much we need help. It's being honest about how much we don't have it together. How we need Christ every single day. And the more mature we get, the more we recognize that. It's, ba- it's very backwards, if you think about it, in accordance with the world. But this is sort of how Jesus presents this, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives the, the, the parable of the wise and foolish builders, right? He says in, in uh, Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's saying to be wise and mature in, in the eyes of the Lord in a Christian life is not to live by your own ideas and your own desires. It's to live according to God's ideas, to God's desires, according to God's word. It's to, it's to depend on God's word the, the same way that we depend on food for our physical nourishment. Do you depend on God and his word that way? Are you seeking God's word to feed your soul the same way you need food every single day to feed your body? Are you building your life on it? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves when we start thinking about what it means to be mature in Christ. And he says one more thing in verse 13. He says, we also, we forget what's behind. He's not saying that we need to forget about our past or forget where we came from, or even that we need to forget some of the the hard or broken things that have happened in us. He's saying we need to forget or leave behind anything that might hinder us from growing mature in Christ. So so think, think things like, um, again, back to Lieutenant Dan, how bitter he is in that part of the movie, in, in that part of Forrest Gump, where he is he just sitting in that wheelchair, stewing on things, and he's so bitter. In fact, he's kind of like, he actually wishes he had died in Vietnam. You know, he's so bitter because, as, as one, I think it was Tim Keller said, bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. You know, so we go over and over and over again about things that happened in the past that we don't agree with, that we wish hadn't happened, and then we just sit in it. And it cements us in our past, and we cannot move, we can't move forward. We can't grow. 
when we're sitting in bitterness. Or, or just, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about how love keeps no record of wrong, right? So when we keep records of wrong against people, like we use that against people, and we say, aha, but you did this, and you did this, and you did this back in 1987 or whatever, and, and we're like, so I'm free to do whatever I want. But, but again, we're, that keeps us stuck in the past. Or, or again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's saying we, the mature in Christ take forgiveness seriously. If we know that we have wronged someone, we go to that person. Even if we're in the midst of worship, we leave worship, we go to that person, we try to reconcile. We don't, we don't let disagreements and hurt feelings just take root in our hearts and, and create bitterness. We deal with it quickly, humbly. Like one of, my, one of my pastors when I was in Tennessee would say, we keep short accounts with people. But again, all of that depends on the future hope of eternity in Christ. If we don't have that, then none of this matters, right? I mean, that's what Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, this is no way to live if there's not a hope of, of, of eternity with Christ. But if there is a hope of eternity with Christ, this is the way to live. So we're practicing for that. So as we move on, though, we move from, a, from talk of hope to a warning. Paul gives us a warning in verses 17 through 19. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So what I want us to see here is that eternity, another effect it has on us is to, is to stoke our compassion for the lost. We, we look at the reality of eternity and it makes us compassionate for those who don't know Jesus Christ. Paul says to take care that we're not following in the way that of those who, who have their minds set on earthly things. Okay, He's, he says he says some pretty harsh things. He's like, hey, their God is their belly. What does that mean? Well, it just means they, they're living for earthly things. They're living for temporary things. They worship temporary things. And he says their end is destruction. In other words, I mean, we have to, we have to face facts that the Bible says that those who do not know Jesus will not have eternal life. They will have eternal death. They will not be just like snuffed out. They'll have a conscious eternal death. Why? Because they, just like we used to, reject Jesus. And their, and their minds are set on earthly things. I mean, we, all of us, at some point or other, have been an enemy of Jesus. 
Every single one. This is what Romans 5 says, is that the only people that Jesus saves are enemies. He doesn't save any of his friends because he didn't have any. Every single one of us is his enemy, and then he saves us, and then we become his friends, right? So we have to remember that, and that also should drive us toward compassion. But we know, again, these people who walk as enemies of Christ, they have their minds set on earthly things. And again, Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So as Christians, we are free uh, to participate in earthly things, to enjoy earthly things without sin, of course. If it drives us to sin, we need to back away from it. But those things don't drive our priorities. They don't set our agendas. They don't they're not what our life pursuit is, but, but what Paul is saying is that in society, people whose minds are set on earthly things, that is what drives their priorities. That is what drives their desires. That is what drives their pursuits. They pursue pleasure, comfort, wealth, power. These are their gods. They don't have names like in the ancient world. They don't, nobody in society is going to tell you they're worshiping Zeus or, or Athena or somebody like that, but but they're worshiping these things like they're gods. And then, and then you see, like, when this is the case, this life, there is such an immense pressure and anxiety on people to have everything go their way now. They need to have this life be as close to perfect now because why? Because this is all they think there is. If it doesn't go perfectly now, then it's a waste. That is the mindset of someone who's got their mind set on earthly things. So in the simplest form, you see this with like what happened when I was eight. And I do, I do remember this. I went to the Orange Park Mall with my, my family and saw that Nintendo had just come out with Super Mario Brothers 2. And I wanted it. And my parents said no. And I lost my mind. Right there in the mall, I lost my mind. I may have fallen into a fountain or something. I don't know. But I was crying for like an hour. And I think my dad probably had to take me out, you know, have a private conversation, if you know what I mean. But what was going on there? I, I thought in my heart and in my mind at that moment, I was like, I have to have Super Mario 2 or else I will no longer exist as a human being. Like my whole life depends on this. That's how I felt. Maybe we expect that out of eight-year-olds, but what happens when that just carries on into adulthood? Right? When we have these just huge expectations for what life should be. I mean... Isn't this why we have an opioid crisis in our world right now? Isn't this why we, we have people who are ODing and just struggling so much? I mean, they, you think about it, like, it could happen to anybody, really. You, just, you have such a sense of disappointment, lack of hope, lack of drive, lack of options. Every day you wake up and it's just misery. So what do you do? You want to numb your pain, Right? just want to numb it. You want it to go away. Or what about body image? We talked about having a perfect body earlier. That is going to happen one day. It ain't happening right now. But there's people who, who live like it should. 
I mean, body image crisis, especially for young girls, somehow, some way, they've got it in their heads that if they don't have a perfect body, that they're not somebody. They're not important. They're, they're devaluing themselves because they find like one little flaw. And it's crushing them, crushing them with anxiety, crushing them with, with a sense of failure, all because of just some terrible, awful, wrong expectation. Or think about how this plays out in a marriage. You, you get married to somebody, you, you're excited, but over, over time, over the years, some of that romantic spark sort of goes away a little bit. You know, and you think, oh, this person, is, this person has problems. How did, how did I not see this? How did I not see this person has problems? What? I thought, I thought marriage was going to be just this eternity of bliss, you know? I can't, have, I can't be married to somebody with problems, right? That's what, I mean, I guess that's simplistic, but that's sort of how people think. And they think, gosh, maybe I need to, maybe I don't love this person. Maybe I need to divorce this person. I need to go find somebody. I need to go find my soulmate before it's too late. You know, I've only got one life, so I better find the person that meets all of my needs perfectly or else. Good luck. What happens when you put two sinners under one roof? They sin. They break things. They break each other's hearts. They hurt each other. That's marriage. Not, I mean, that's not all marriage is, but... I love you, honey. I'm, just, I'm making my whole family mad this morning. It's great. I, I'm not getting lunch, but, um, but do, we, do we look at marriage that way because we think this is, this is the only life I've got. I've got to have it. It's got to be perfect. got to be right. When we don't or won't believe that we have an eternity with God awaiting us, then we we can't look at this life as, as training for that. We, this is the show. This is it. It's all we got. We've got to find ultimate meaning or else. And that, my friends, should invoke compassion for the lost. You know, since March of 2020, there's been so much weird stuff that's happened in our world that I find I probably said in the past 18 or 20 months or whatever it is, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I have said that more in the past year and a half than I've probably ever said in my whole life, and maybe you have too, but I need you to think about this for a second. What does a person who doesn't know Jesus say? They got nothing. They got nothing. This is it. They got no hope. Nobody's coming to rescue them. At least that's what they think. And shouldn't that fill us with compassion for them? Shouldn't that fill our eyes with tears for them? Because they don't know the hope of Christ. They don't have a relationship with Him. I would just encourage us all as we seek to walk in maturity with Christ that we let our lives be an example to them and, and be willing to be open and honest about why we have hope, about what our hope is and who our hope is. And then finally, verses 20 through 21, Paul has one final word on eternity. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So eternity shifts our expectations 
for the here and now. Actually, makes our expectations correct, realistic, right. We know that a perfect life with Jesus awaits us in eternity, so this life doesn't have to be perfect. We don't have to get it all right right now. We don't have to have it all together right now. We will have a time when we'll have it all together for eternity. It's going to be great. But until, until then, what does Paul say? Our citizenship is in heaven, which means it's not here. This is not our home. In Ephesians 2, Paul says we're citizens and members of, a house, of the household of God. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. That's our hope. But he also says in 2 Corinthians 5, whether we're here or whether we're home with the Lord, our aim should be to please the Lord, no matter what we're doing. Our aim should be to please the Lord. So that means that, you know, as the old saying goes, we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? We actually have an opportunity with, with this reality that, that heaven awaits us we have an opportunity to actually have at maximum enjoyment of this life and to be better neighbors in this life. Why? So, enjoyment, right? If I go out with my family and we go to an amusement park, we go to the beach or something, I can enjoy that day just for what it is. It doesn't have to be a perfect day, right? Because here's what I know. Somebody's going to cry. Somebody's going to spill something on my seat. You know, somebody's going to get sand in the car, or, or somebody, somebody's going to walk off and not tell us where they're going, and we're going to spend 20 minutes trying to find them, you know, the, the teenagers, not the little kids, sorry. Um, that stuff's going to happen, but it can still be a good day. It doesn't have to be a perfect day. I can enjoy it for what it is. Or think, think about this, rejection, disappointment. We, fi- we find we feel these things every single day, right? How do we view that? in light of eternity. It still stings. It still hurts, but eternity takes the edge off, man. We, we look at Jesus and we know, hey, he was rejected for us. He was rejected for He went to the cross. He was, he was scorned, beaten, killed, rejected for us so that we would never be rejected again. So we'll always have a place in his family. And we can deal with disappointment because we know we have an eternity coming where we'll never be disappointed again. We'll always be fulfilled. We'll always be satisfied. I mean, Jesus is always going to get everything right for us. And this means also we can be better neighbors because simply put, when we view life in light of eternity, we don't have to put all of our eggs into the me basket We don't have to satisfy every single one of my desires. We don't have to be so self-focused. We'd actually be focused on being generous to others, on sacrificially loving people, on giving away our time and our money and our talent so that people can be bettered. We don't have to have all the focus on us and having our life be perfect. We can carry other people's burdens. So it really does change everything. All, All because Jesus was in heaven. He... And he saw fit. He desired to leave his place in heaven, to come to earth, to take on an imperfect body himself. And he saved us by dying on the cross, and and he's going to come back again. That's the promise. It's, It's because Jesus has already risen from the dead. We know we have a guarantee that this promise is going to happen. He's coming back, and he's going to make earth into heaven. For now, we get to enjoy a life with him, to seek to please him, 
we can live sacrificially for others. And we do that embracing the hope of eternity with Jesus. So look, let's run our race. We all got a race to run. Christ has laid it out for us. Let's run our race well. Let's run our race with effort, with enjoyment, with love. Looking across the finish line, excited for what awaits us. Let's pray.